Today we're looking at Zechariah. We left off at Zechariah. We've been going through Zechariah here, at least I have. And we're in Zechariah chapter 7. We're finished with visions, folks. I hate to leave the visions because I really liked the visions, not that I ever had any. But I, I like the idea of the visions. I like the way that God communicates through those visions. But um, here we are in Zechariah chapter 7. And I'm, I'm just going to look at verses 1 through 7, so you get, can keep that in mind. We're not going to try to do the whole chapter. I, I've rarely ever done a whole chapter. But uh, we're going to look at that. And I call the um, message, Motives Matter. When we had Truth Matters this past week. Motives Matters. Truth is sufficient for your life. But you know what? We have motives, things that drive us, things that, that uh, cause us to do what we do. And so the question is this, why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? Do you do what you do because that is what expected of you? Yeah, I'm expected to go to church. I'm expected to do this. I'm expected to do that. Do you do what you do because that is what you want to do? Or is somebody else making you do it? What drives you? What drives your inner man, inner woman? What, what kind of desires are there? What kind of, of will and affections are there to make you do what you do? Those are the questions that are going to be asked here and answered here. The next question is this, do you, do we, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, do what we do because it's pleasing to God? Do we do what we do because it's pleasing to God? Or is there an ulterior motive? Motivation is what we're talking about here. And according to Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, it's probably the only time you ever hear me use the Webster's Collegiate Dictionary. It says this, it's the act or the process of motivating. A, a motivating force, a stimulus or influence. See, for the believer, when you come to Christ, the stimulating force that's behind you is the Holy Spirit, and it's your desire to be living a life that's pleasing to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. My ambition, whether at home or abroad, is to be pleasing to Him. That's supposed to be my ambition. That's supposed to be my motive is to do that because it's pleasing to God. But I, I find so often with Christians, when they come to my office for counseling or even just in a conversation, their motivation is not because they want to be pleasing to God. Their motivation is something else. So the motivation that we're talking about here is the incentive or the drive to do something. Today we're going to see motives. You're going to look at the passages I read and you're going to say, huh, is that really there? Yeah, it's there. Folks, we want to see pure motives that are not self-serving motives. And, and may I even, before we get started, if you notice any impure motives in what you're doing, okay, that you not only take it to the Lord and seek forgiveness, but that you make a plan, you make a plan. If you just leave it there, oh yeah, another message, I should do that. Next Sunday we come back and you're not going to remember it. Oh, should I say tomorrow morning? You're not going to remember it. Make a plan. Do something about it. 
Don't just listen. Don't be just an auditor of the word of God, but be a doer of the word of God. I think there's a verse about that somewhere, isn't there? So let's give you the incentive here. Let's show you what happens with these Old Testament Hebrews and what they did. So we want to look at these motives. We want to make sure that they're pure motives and they're not self-serving motives. And let's look at Matt, um, Zechariah chapter 7, verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth mu month, uh, which is Keslev, or Cheslev. I mean, depending upon how you, I wasn't there when they were writing those words, but now the town of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regmelich uh, and their men to seek favor of the Lord, speaking to the priests who belong to the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, saying, Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain, as I have done these many, many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh month, these 70 years was it actually for me? that you fasted? When you eat and drink, do you eat and drink for yourselves or, or do you drink for yourselves? Are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous along with its cities around it and the Negev and the foothills were inhabited? You look at that and you say, wow, how do I get motives out of that? How do I get intentions out of that? Well, we got to give you a little bit of background. And, and frankly, folks, this passage here is like playing with fire. As a young person, I've never played with fire. As an old man, I've never played with fire. I think it would be very dangerous to play with fire, but I, obviously somebody did a couple of weeks ago. You see, what the Lord is saying here to these folks, what he's saying to you, what he's saying to me, is do you honor me? Do you love me? Do you love me as your master, your king, your savior, your Lord? It points out the need for continued self-reflection. We need to look at ourselves on occasion. I don't mean become uh, uh, just looking at our own self all the time, but we need to look at ourselves and see, why am I doing what I do? Why do I come to Grace Community Church on Sunday? Why do I come on Sunday evening? Why do I do these things? What is it producing in me? because I do come, is because I think there's a cute girl on the other side of the room and I want to get to know her. That's for the singles, okay? Or I see this family that's really got good kids and I want to get to know them so that my kids are good. Or is it because I want to be seen by somebody and the, they may buy my product and those kinds of things? Is that a reason? So there's a need here for self-reflection and so self-reflection on, on heart and on attitudes and on, on the mind. And so uh, we're going to look at this chapter here, this section. You know, it's interesting. Um, ACDC gives you the titles for your uh, next conference uh, message. The last one, I think I told you, I've got a gun to my head. And I went, whoa, that's uh, pretty dangerous. Okay, that was last, my last title. I've got a gun to my head because it was on suicide. This time, they give me the title, Who Am I? I mean, I can go in a lot of different directions. 
of who I am. Who am I? This passage here really gets down to the nitty gritty in trying to reveal who am I? In Christ, who am I? What are, are the standards that I live by? Am I living by God's standards? Am I assessing myself according to the word of God or is it my standard? This passage is going to give us two steps. Two steps that are going to be taken to transform our thinking to produce the right kind of motives, the right kind of attitudes. The first one is this, transforming the heart by recognizing selfishness. Now, I know we're not, there's nobody here at Anchor that deals with that. Wait, can I get more chuckle out of that? Okay. We know it's everybody else. It's that other church. It's my cousin. It's my wife who's not here. That kind of thing. Yeah. Transforming the heart by recognizing selfishness. We'll see that in verses one through three. And then transforming the heart to serving God. That's how we transform the heart. We begin to serve verses four through seven. So let's go back to the passage. It says there in the fourth year of King Darius, which is Cheslav. This gives us exact date, folks. This places this event as December 7th. Very famous date, but it's not in the 1900s. It was in 518 BC, December 7th, 518. There's a couple of things that we need to note about this. First of all, from the end of chapter 6 to now is two years later. So it's progressed two years more since the end of chapter 6. Zechariah put down his pen and, and, and he began to live his life and continued to teach the people. But now he's being spoken to again by the Lord. And by the way, this Keslev here, or Cheslev, if you want to say it that way, is actually a Babylonian designation. So some sense Babylon is still over the Jews, even though they're back in the promised land, even though they're back in Jerusalem, even though they're building the temple, they still have Babylonian direction of some kind. Doesn't, doesn't get tell you exactly what that is. It gives us the idea that the Babylonians are overseeing what is going on in Jerusalem to a degree. The first part of the, this prophecy, Zechariah gave us eight visions, if you remember that, and you can go back to that and listen. I I think we went through that fairly quickly. And in those eight visions, it kept telling us that God is faithful. God is faithful. He's going to rebuild the temple. He's going to rebuild the temple. Now, the best guesstimate is that temple is about half complete at this point, maybe a little bit more than half complete. Verse 2. Now, the town of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to seek the favor of the Lord. They came to seek the favor of the Lord. They're, they're looking for something. Give me, give me, give me. You know, sometimes we do that in our prayers, don't we? God, give me health. God, give me a better spouse. God, change these kids you gave me. Well, wait a minute, you asked for them. <laughs> you know, change my job, all of this kind of stuff. We're always asking for something. And so that's what they're doing. It shows a selfish heart here. The selfishness that is in there needs to be gotten rid of. And so they need to recognize it. And Zachariah is going to deal with them. Bethel, by the way, is a small town. It's about 10 to 12 miles north of Jerusalem. 
If you remember, this is the gateway that uh, the Babylonians came into Jerusalem to capture it. They came in through the north there and captured the city of Jerusalem. Both Shereza and Regalmelech are non-Jewish names. They're actually Babylonian names. And so you're wondering, well, they're probably Jewish. These are probably Jewish men who had their names changed. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would be others. And, and so they had their names changed. They probably are living there. They probably returned with the exiles who first came back, and they took up residence in Bethel instead of going all the way to Jerusalem. The verse indicates that the assembly came for two reasons. They came for a blessing or favor, if you want to put it in those terms. And then they came for a positive answer and something else. They wanted a positive answer to their questioning of fasting. I'm not going to get into the theology of fasting or anything like that. Um, there's no need to do that because that's not what is being spoken about here. They were not approaching the Lord with their hand open. They were approaching the Lord with, give me, give me, give me. I want, I want, I want. And not only that, give me now, give me now. They were not looking for counsel from Zechariah. It's just the way they put it. No, they had ulterior motives and frankly, interior motives. It was all about themselves. We've been doing this fasting. They only cared about themselves. They were self-serving in their coming to Zechariah. The second reason for the delegation being sent to Jerusalem is to speak to Zechariah and others about the subject of fasting. We see the question posed here in the third verse. Why do we keep fasting? Why do we keep mourning? And usually with fasting folks is the idea of mourning and, and, and trying to look even downtrodden or looking sorrowful or whatever. That's basically what fasting does. It's, it's got that sort of connotation to at least in the Old Testament. Why do you keep fasting? They're saying basically, woe is me. God, we've been doing all this fasting. Not only have we done all this fasting, we've done it for 70 years now. I, I'm, I mean, for Christians, for New Testament believers, you ask how many times you fast. Well, I, I think I tried it once, you know, and I think I did Monday. And then and after that, it didn't work very well. Okay. But here they are doing fasting for 70 years. And why did they do the fasting? Because their city was destroyed. It's now under reconstruction. Now the city is getting better. It's coming together. The bottom line of this question, the question here, the bottom line is this. Do we keep on fasting now that the temple is almost rebuilt? We've done what we needed. We did our penance. We did our penance. We did our Hail Marys or our fathers and, and, and we've done our rosary beads and you know our genuflections and all of the other stuff. We've done all of this. So we don't have to keep doing it. By the way, the fast that they are partaking in was initiated by man, not by God. God never asked for this fast to be taken. They did it in response to the destruction of the temple. This fast was not an Old Testament commanded um, fast. The only fast that's commanded in the Old Testament is Yom Kippur, where they're supposed to fast. Now, folks, I think you know I, I come from New York. I used to work with a lot of Jewish people, and when it came to about the, the holidays, um, I started asking them questions, and, 
And, and this lady said, well, you know, we can't work, so I've got to go home before the, the lights go on because I can't turn my lights on. And, and then she's got her lights on, a, an automatic turn on. I said, it just, you know, all of the stuff that they do is to get around. I said, well, how do you get up the elevator? Because I knew she was in an apartment. And she said, well, it's an automatic elevator. And we've been to Israel during that time. They just keep going. It just keeps going to each floor. And keeps. So they get around it. Well, why don't you walk up the stairs? <laughs> but you can't press the button. Now, here's what they did to themselves. They gave themselves four times when they had to fast. The 10th month, which is what we're just talking about, was to commemorate the siege of Jerusalem. So in the 10th month, they couldn't, they, they fasted. In the fourth month, it was to commemorate the city walls being broken through. In the fifth month, they was to commemorate the temple being burned. That was in 586. And in the seventh month, when the governor was assassinated. So they've got four fasts that God never asked for. And they're doing these things. The question is, are we to continue fast? Are we supposed to continue this fasting? I have kept these fasts for 70 years. From 586 to 516. And the temple is being rebuilt. It's halfway done. Can't we stop these things? Look at the end of the third verse, which I think is so pathetic. Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these 70 years? Oh, it's so hard. So hard. It'd be, it'd be like a Christian saying, I, I, I've done all this work for you, Lord. It's so hard. Wait a minute. I saved you from hell. Is what God could say. And they're saying, but this is such hard work. Shall I keep up this hard work for him? And I would say to them, friend, God never told you to do the fast in the first place. Who are you doing it for? Are you doing it for your neighbor to watch you? As you look tired because you're not eating all the food that you should be eating or, or drinking the, the drink that you're supposed to be drinking. So, folks, this delegation comes down and, and they use this word weep when they ask the question of Zechariah. But he answers it with fast because it's basically the same thing. They're married together. Fasting is often associated with weeping. And so the two words come together. And, and so he answers with the word fast. Beloved, the assembly led by Shereza and Regimelech inquire if the fasting is needed. We've been at this for 70 years. It has become burdensome to us. Uh, folks, this reminded me of when I was a little guy. I don't know why, but my mom wouldn't let me eat dessert until I ate the vegetables. I was really, I was cruel. I was really cruelly punished as a child. I mean, she made me eat those vegetables until one day she found vegetables in my pants pocket because I put them in there. <laughs> I did not like spinach, didn't like string beans. I didn't like anything green. It was not supposed to be eaten. Everybody who eats green stuff dies. So I, I did that. Now, we also lived in an apartment house, which had 12-foot ceilings. So one time I thought, if I throw it up, it'd stick to the ceiling. You, you wouldn't want me as a son, folks. <laughs> but that was cruel. She wouldn't let me have the dessert until I ate the vegetables. 
That's basically what they're saying. I mean, it's so childish what they're saying. Oh, I can't do this. I can't do this. The restrictions that the Jews had was self-inflicted restrictions. Beloved, if, as we would all agree here, God is the one who transforms the heart. And when he transforms the heart, we are to enjoy him and enjoy him forever. The first three verses here expose the heart of the men here to their selfishness. God's determination is to display to these folks how selfish they really are. They're over there, gimme, gimme, gimme. He didn't point out the exact motives, but he showed them how selfish they were. That's the first step. The second step is this. In successfully transforming the heart is by serving God to do something for God, not for self. You know, I looked around this week and, and when I came into the office, I see people from our church serving out there, coffee and donuts and other things. And, and I know that there's lots of stuff going on here all day long. Those folks serve from the heart to do that because they were glad to do that. No one made them do that. No one was going to be picked out to be seen to be doing that. Okay, we're in seven, chapter 7, verse 4. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying. Word comes to Zechariah, and he's going to tell us what that is. And, and I love this verse. It says, say to all the people of the land, to the priests. In other words, God is giving him the word to say to them, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month for 70, 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? He's putting the question right up into their face. Did you really do it for me? Are you sure that you really did it for me? God is indignant here, going through Zechariah and having him ask this question, indignant and straightforward at the same time. God gets right to the heart of things, folks, just like that. Sometimes in counseling, I, I do that. I get right to the heart. Boy, you sound really selfish. You don't want to come to counseling for me, go to somebody else. Because we sometimes do that. Because we see through it so quickly. And that's what God has done here. Indignant and straightforward that they are selfish. Fasting, folks, is a private matter. It's a private matter between a man or a woman and their God. That's what it should be, is a private matter. Fasting should always be for the purpose or the desire to see God's intervention in their life for his glory. In their life for his glory. That's what it's about. The Jews were ritualistic in this situation. They checked off the box. Christianity, folks, is not a box checking off. You don't check off the box. Well, I went to church here. I went to church here. Well, I did two out of four Sundays. I did three out of five Sundays. No, no, it's not checking off the box. Either you love God or you don't. Either you want him or you don't. It's not ritualistic in any sense, but that's what they were pointing out. That's what God was pointing out to them. And he asked this question, which is right in their, eye, right in their face, was it actually for me that you fasted? Really? Really? Was it for me? Or is it because your neighbors were able to see you doing it? 
or is it because you were showing off to your spouse or your child or whatever it else? Zechariah does not answer their question, but he poses another question in return. This reveals the wickedness of the, their heart. Is what you do really for God or for you? And I'm going to put that question out there for all of us. Is what Bill Shannon does on Sunday for God or for him? Believe me, that, that those are things that we pray and, and we struggle with all the time. Why do I do what I do? Why are those things happening? Why do you do what you do? You know, I, I give that reading plan out every year when it comes to the new year and, and checking those boxes off. Well, you know, I, I'm a little bit behind this year, you know, and I'm checking off those boxes. And it made me think about it. Am I just a box checking off kind of Christian? Or, or, or am I really in this because I love him and what he's done for me? And we have to make those kinds of assessments of ourselves, folks. We cannot just assume just because I go to Grace Church that I'm going to heaven. You go to Matthew chapter 7, and it says there at the end, it says, I never knew you. It's talking about people who are prophesying, people who are doing good works. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Is it really out of a love for God? Is it really out of all that he has done for you? Or is it self-serving? And I think, I, I got to tell you, it's something that you have to think about. You have to struggle with. Their heart is being revealed here. Is what you do really for God? Going to church, Bible study, serving. Is it for you or for God? This fast that the Hebrew people are partaking in was for selfish reasons. They were trying to manipulate God. They were trying to manipulate God. Look at all we're doing. Four times in a year, we're going to do this fasting so that you would help us. Can I tell you, folks, God is not a vending machine. And you can't pull the lever. Oh, look what I did and try to get something from him. God never commanded them to do this fast. He doesn't command you necessarily to do a fast. You do that out of the privacy of your heart for him. But they were practicing religion here. And there's lots of people who practice religion. You know, frankly, this would be, and I'm making a little bit of a side thing here. I'm going to get out of the pulpit so I don't get struck. This would be like a Christian saying, I'm going to give up Chick-fil-A on Sunday. <laughs> yeah. What a sacrifice. What a sacrifice. By the way, I had leftovers from the grace to you, so I may eat on Sunday. <laughs> the Jew was looking upon their sacrifice as something meritorious. They, they were thinking something that this deed deserves something, a special treatment from God. You know, as a, as a struggling Roman Catholic, altar boy, you know, during Lent, you're supposed to give something up, you know? Or you're supposed to do something. And one year I chose, you know what? During Lent, I'm going to go to Mass every single day. But I wanted the priest to see me. 
I mean, I was an altar boy. I wanted to be the president of the altar boys. I mean, you know, how do you do that? Got to get to know the priest. Folks, we do those kinds of things. You know, it's so hard to not be recognized by other people because we always want to be recognized by other people. And that's what the Jews are talking about here. Would you turn with me to Joel chapter 2? Joel chapter 2 has a, a little bit of an insight for us here. And it says in Joel chapter 2, verse 12, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me. You remember those words, return to me? That comes from chapter 1. It means repent with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. He's calling them, this is what you need to do. You really want to know the Lord? You really want to get close to him, do these things. And rend your heart and not your garments. You see, garments are the outside. You show people, oh, look at how much I'm serving the Lord. You know, they would tear their garments and say, how holy I am. Oh, I'm really tired from this fasting, you know. I mean, that's what the idea was, is that they would be seen by others. God's looking at the heart. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. He wants your heart. He doesn't want all the outward stuff. Don't do it, folks, for his, for the reward of others, but do it for his sake, okay? Your worship, your service, your spirituality must always be directed toward God not in looking good, not in looking good. It's not about you looking good. You know, sometimes we do that with our parenting. We get upset with our kids because they, they've done something stupid in front of all the other parents, you know, and oh, what an embarrassment they are. Folks, that's what kids do. I remember a Sunday school teacher were picking up one of our children. She said, oh, your child did this. And I said, is that all? <laughs> I, I mean, I expect more. They're a kid. I want to deal with it, yes. I wouldn't protect them. That No, they would never do that. I expect that. These post-exilic Jews were fasting for themselves and not for God, not for the Lord, not for Yahweh. They saw their fasting as an end in itself. Maybe for self-pity's sake or maybe for sorrow's sake, but not for God. They were whining about this. How difficult this is. Rather, okay, folks, that if you're going to fast, having joy in the Lord. That's what we should do. Because our fasting should bring us closer to him, in communion with him. It's a privilege to be able to fast and give it to the Lord. That's a worship to him. Now, I know that I'm not stepping on anybody's toes here because we'd never do that because we're anchored. But for those outside of anchored, what's the reality of our love for God, our service for him? You know, just being down south just recently in, in Memphis and then over, we went over to Nashville. We took two days, three days over there as a couple and we had some time, okay, which we don't get a lot of. So we had some time there and we saw these churches 10 churches on a block, eight churches on a block. And I'm going, is there anybody preaching the word of God here? And I keep getting the answer, no. 
No, no. These stone quarries are there, and there's nothing going on in there. You folks are privileged to be able to hear the word of God on a regular basis. Taught by Pastor John. Take it seriously now. Take it seriously now because God may send you to Memphis, Tennessee. He may send you to New York City. That's even worse. <laughs> Why do people go to church? Why do they even darken the doors? And I, I'm, they tell me those churches are full all the time. Uh, do they do it to be seen by their neighbor, by a business associate, to feel good about themselves? Or is it about the worship of God? And I do believe that there are worshipers of God there. But you see, folks, God deserves complete worship, undistracted worship, and not the, well, at least I made it this week, worship. But it should be undistracted. We're going to have communion today. Take it seriously. Spend some time with the Lord before you receive that communion. Go through your week and look at the things that you may have done or didn't do. Take them to the Lord. God condemns the fasting that is about the person, about their needs, and not for the purpose of worshiping God. Our motive must always be to exalt the name of a great God and Savior. Any activity that is done with a legalistic flavor is displeasing to the Lord. A heart that is transformed spiritually by fasting brings great joy and glory to God. Our worship of God is for his glory, his joy, his service, and his pleasure. That's why the question, was your fasting for me? Was it for him? Look at verse six. When you eat and drink, do you eat for yourselves or do you drink for yourselves? What, what, are, what are our eating? Is our eating for us or is it for God? Folks, it's really for God. As New Testament believers, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. Wow. That's, that's right there in front of us. Even our eating should be to the glory of God. Now, that does not mean you need to eat vegetables. <laughs> Just want you to know that. You see, the real motivation is selfish here. Let's look at 7, 6. Let me read that for us. And it says, when you eat and drink, do not eat for yourselves and do not drink for yourselves. It's not for you. It's for him. The real motivation of the Hebrews is selfish. And God is pointing it out to them. Your religious activity should never be for selfish purposes. You see, Zechariah never answered the question that they posed to him. He never gave them the whether it's legitimate to be fasting or not. Can you do me a favor? Let's turn to, do I have time? Yes, Psalm 139. I want to show you a, remember I mentioned in the beginning when we were starting, I said, come up with a plan. I think this is a good plan, Psalm 139. Because obviously it's God's word. And Psalm 139, there's a recognition here of God as almighty, all-powerful, ever-present. 
And in Psalm 139, um, starting in verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. So God searches and knows every person. So if you fast, he knows exactly the purpose behind it, the motive, the thinking, the desire, what is making you do those kinds of things. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. Even the thoughts that are going around in our brains. He knows those thoughts, every single one. God knows the most intimate of details about us. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. He knows every single thing about us. You know, even when somebody questions your motives, he knows what the real motive was. I mean, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, able to um, divide bone and marrow and to get to the thoughts and tensions of the heart. Even when you can't understand it yourself, God still knows. The word of God still is able to divide that. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, even before it comes out, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. This is David explaining how much God knows about him. David is the one who sinned with Bathsheba. David is the one who tried to hide that sin from who? People. Couldn't hide it from God. Tried to hide it from people. Because here she is, she's pregnant, and Uriah's out in the field fighting a battle. So he kills Uriah to hide it. And he's able to write this? We're not finished. Verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. Folks, we have a good God. He loves us. He doesn't want ill or problems for us. And even when we have them, he's there in that problem, in that situation. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Folks, the omniscience, the omnipotence of God. Incredible, the omnipotence we'll see in 13 through 18. But you know what? We get to the end of this. And David does this. And I find this so curious. Go down with me to verse 23. I'm skipping over some of it, making sure that we have enough time. David was a people pleaser. Definitely. When he killed Uriah. Because he didn't want the people to find out what he did. He wanted to be seen good in their eyes. But then he goes through this psalm. He writes this, and he gets to verse 23. And he says these things. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Now, wait a minute. He, he described how God knew his thought before he said it. He knew 
David when he was in his mother's womb, okay? And he's saying, search me, O God, and know my heart. What he's basically saying, folks, is eliminate those things, those thoughts from my mind that make me the center of this world. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Eliminate all unrighteousness in me. This is a heart exam like no other. I mean, I've had, I guess they're called EKGs, whatever heart exam. This is nothing can surpass this. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. After he gets explaining all about what God knows about him as a person, even before he's born, and even before he says something, he says, search me. You know what, folks? We need to do that. We need to do that. Are our motives for what we do the pure motives of glory to God? Or are they some kind of a tool of manipulation for others? Is it about our selfishness that I want to be happy or, or my selfishness because I want to be recognized? Whatever it is. That's a pure heart exam, folks. That's a pathway to check your motives, to see if they line up with the things of God. The answer to fasting is profound spiritual inspection. You want to fast? That's fine. Go ahead and fast. But make sure it is a spiritual inspection of who you are before God. Who am I? Who am I? Am I really his? Am I really walking with him? Do I have communion with the living God? That's my prayer for all of you. Then I wouldn't have to do any counseling. I could go and play golf. Just kidding. I mean, it would just be wonderful if we had that kind of communion with the Lord. But you know what? I think sometimes we fool ourselves. We fool ourselves. And we need to get serious about it like David did here. The answer to fasting is profound spiritual inspection as to why the purpose is and how does God receive glory. There's another passage that I wanted to get to and I do have some time here. Isaiah chapter one. This also speaks about fasting. Isaiah 1, starting in verse 10, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? They mean nothing. Sacrifices mean nothing, folks, says the Lord. I've had enough to burn. Uh, I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of uh, fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. This week I was reading through numbers and how many rams were killed and how many of this was killed. And I'm going, my word, that's a slaughter. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. Now, folks, these are people going to the temple. But God knows their heart as he does ours. He knows why we come. He knows what's missing in our heart. 
I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Can you imagine that? If you prayed and God hid his eyes from you and didn't want to listen to you, I'd be, I'd be scared completely. But that's what he's saying here. Yes, you even multiply your prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. And he gives them the solution. Wash yourselves, verse 16. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan and plead for the widow. But to do it from a heart that loves God. A heart that's serving God. Not self. Not self. Met this man once who uh, used to go to uh, uh, garage sales and he'd buy clothing, all the clothing he could buy, okay? Not for himself, put it in his truck and he'd run down to Mexico and give it away to folks that were down in Mexico. This is what he did, he, he loved doing it. He went down there one time and he got saved. <laughs> he was not a Christian when he was doing it. He said, I was doing it because, you know, when I got down there, they'd all come around me and they'd love me and they'd all this kind of stuff. No, no. I do it now, not for that. Do it for the purpose of bringing down the gospel to them. That's what it's about, folks. When we know the Lord Jesus Christ through the work of God in our lives, we experience something very special. We experience the living presence of God. We experience the living presence of God in us. And that living presence of God in us requires a continuing deep transformation in our lives, growing closer to him. In counseling, we call it progressive sanctification, but folks, it's still growing in him. 7-7, seven, seven. let's go back to Zechariah. Are not these words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous along with its cities around it and Negev and the foothills were inhabited? That's a time before the Babylonians came in there and wiped them out. The point, folks, is this. That obedience to God is better than sacrifice. Obedience to God is better than sacrifice. Repentance and true spirituality happen as a work of God and a cooperation of your heart and mind. A good example to this idea of obedience and sacrifice would be the example of Samuel and Saul. Saul's told to do something. He doesn't do it. He did not listen to the word of the Lord. And in 1 Samuel 15, 22, it says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, is the answer to him from Samuel. Verse 23, it says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Obedience is what's necessary. Today, we've looked at motives. Why do we do the things that we do? Especially in conjunction with our spiritual lives. That's what I want you to put that in the context of. Why do you do what you do? I had a young man come to me lots of years ago, and he was struggling in his faith. 
And he said to me, I don't know that what I do is for the Lord or for me. He was talented, had a good voice, played music. He said, I don't, I don't know if I'm getting up there for me or for God. And I mean, he had a sincere struggle, folks, because he liked the accolades. He liked the, the you know, the pats on the back. Wow, that was really good. That was, you got a great voice. This, all of those things are good to hear. And so I took him to 1 Corinthians 3. We don't need to go there. And I said, 1 Corinthians 3 says that we're supposed to be doing these things. And some of it's going to be wood, hay, and stubble. In other words, it's going to be thrown away. And some of it's going to be crowns cast before the God. I said, just keep doing what you're doing. And you know what? Don't beat yourself up. Don't beat yourself up over your genuineness. Just keep serving the Lord. Keep doing it for that purpose to serve the Lord. I don't know if that, that set in, but he's now in a church doing music. And so God used that somehow. We do struggle, folks. We do. Understood. Why do I do what I do? And so the question is, how about you? Some of you have led Bible studies in the past. What, did you, what reason did you do it for? Maybe you're even leaving one now. Why do you do it? Was it for you or for God? Some time that we, we set up on Sunday morning here, and I know some of the folks are very faithful to do that. Do you do it for you or do you do it for God? Sometimes at the end of the year, we have folks that give a little bit extra money. And, and the question is, do you do it for you or do you do it for your tax return or you do it for God? got to think about it. Walt Kaiser said this, all religious acts must flow out of a genuine response of faith and obedience to God, or they are merely self-serving, self-glorifying, and consequently self-condemning. That's what these Jews did. They were condemning themselves even by asking the question. They've been doing it for so long. It's so hard on us. Well, for us, we're saved. We know the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to heaven. There isn't anything he could ask me to do that I would not want to do. So today, hopefully, we've seen that our motives, our thinking, our will, our affections need to be for the glory of God. And we see that because this passage here points out the transforming nature of what God does, the heart that needs to recognize selfishness. I think that's pretty easy to recognize selfishness. And then have a heart that's willing to serve God. Let's pray. Father, it's good to be home. It's good to be amongst friends. It's good to be amongst those who hold me accountable. It's good to be amongst those, Lord, who you're continuing to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. This is a great group of folks, Lord. As I was in two different churches, I know these people. I know how they love you. I pray they continue to grow that way. If there's anyone here that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that you would put it on their heart to speak to somebody about their walk with you, that they would be encouraged, Lord, 
to check their heart as David did. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there is any wicked way in me. Dear God, pray that they would do that, even today. Pray this in your name. Amen.